I said, we play on two large diaphragm microphones and that's it. And he looks at me and he goes, that'll never work in here. So we get done with the show and the guy, he comes up to me and he goes, man, that was the greatest thing I've ever heard in my life. Unbelievable what you guys do over those two microphones. He goes, listen to this, listen to this. And he, he starts playing it back over the PA, right? I said, hey man, turn that off. First of all, I said, everybody's already seen the show. Hey, what's up, everyone? I hope you're having a great day. Glad you could join me on the show. This is the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. I'm Keith Billick, and this is this is a very unprecedented occasion today. This is actually the second podcast I will have been on within about a day or so. And what's this, you might ask? Yeah, I am talking about a second banjo-related podcast. This one is called Live from Banjo, and it is hosted by Marcus Gillis and his wife, Crystal. They do a great job interviewing mostly musicians. It's always educational. It's not quite as nuts and bolts about banjo as this one, but you always learn a lot about the people that they are profiling and various other trivial knowledge. Uh, I think you'll really dig it. And I was humbled and honored and flattered to be asked to be a guest on the show. So that was just published today. You can go to livefrombanjo.com and uh, check out my episode and check out all the other episodes. There are a lot of good ones out there, including some friends of mine, personal uh, personal friends, also some bandmates and just other cool musicians. So thank you, Marcus and Crystal, for having me on. It was definitely weird having to be the, the subject of an interview. And I, I'm not one to really enjoy talking about myself too much. So I, I know I don't do that much here, so you'll probably learn something about me in the process and hopefully be entertained. So yeah, check it out. Other news from Picky Fingers HQ. I have scheduled the next VIP Lounge video meetup with me and your fellow VIP listeners. That will be July 18th at 1 p.m. Eastern time. And the we, we actually just wrapped up the other day the previous VIP lounge and it was a lot of fun. We played tunes for each other. I gave a bit of a demonstration on how I slow down pieces of music and learn them and we had a good discussion about that. So I'm looking forward to this next one as well. And for those of you who would love to be invited to this VIP lounge, here's how you go to patreon.com slash banjo podcast and that will tell you exactly what you need to do to become a VIP and it involves pledging $4 per month to help support the show and you get some pretty cool rewards out of it including invitations to that VIP lounge and speaking of which we have an extra special VIP to thank personally on the show today today's VIP of the show is Jeff Schaefer it sounds like he is just a general banjo fan he he says that the banjo just gives anything any type of music a more sophisticated expansive sound Jeff that's a that's a great take, and it sounds like he's learning a lot from all sorts of sources, personal lessons, Tune Fox Online, Artist Works. He, he's soaking it all in, and so that's the way to go, Jeff, and I really appreciate the support. Once again, that's patreon.com slash banjo podcast to become a supporter yourself. Other ways to support the show, go to banjopodcast.com to take a look at the cool merch we have, including the cool kids t-shirts and stickers. You can share around episodes on social media, track me down on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, like, subscribe, rate, review, five stars, of course, 
all that kind of stuff. You, you know the routine for liking and subscribing and following. So I appreciate all that. And other than that, email me, pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com with any comments, suggestions, criticisms, uh, you know, all of that. Today's featured guest is Mike Bubb, which most of you probably know him as the longtime bass player for the Del McCurry Band. But that track that you're hearing right now, that is Mike Bubb playing the banjo. That's right, Mike Bubb grew up a banjo player and has recorded professionally as a banjoist. He has since been corrupted into becoming one of the, the greatest bluegrass bassists in the business. However, we all know that that would never have been possible were it not for his background playing our favorite instrument, the banjo. As you may have noticed, this episode is quite long, and it's just because, like I said, he's one of the best in the business. He has a lot of stories, and they are all extremely insightful and useful and entertaining. So I I had uh, a great time chatting with Mike. He's a great storyteller, and I'm excited for you to hear them all. So here it is, my interview with Mike Bubb. So, Mike, first thing I'll say is that in about 2001 or 2002, when I just started playing the banjo, I've been playing for, I don't know, maybe a few months, and my buddies who knew I, I was getting serious about it said, you got to go with us tonight, see this Del McCurry band over at the Ark in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Oh, cool. And I trusted these guys, and they, they did me right, because it was a great show, and blew my mind. So you, you kind of have yourself to blame for the fact that I'm still here <laughs> Being inspired by this music, knocking on your door. It's and, a good John Harford song. I'm Bart's, still here. Do you know that one? No, I don't. Oh, find that one. <laughs> well, it's biographical, I guess, in this case. So, thanks for putting on a good show 20 years ago. Hey, we love playing at the Ark. That was that's one of the best bluegrass stages there is because it's an intimate room and it sounds great in there. Yeah. And of course, at that time we just played on two microphones, and so it's just a great sort of bluegrass experience you know it's very intimate and i and i will say i've, I've seen plenty of shows at the arc and they kind of cater to definitely bluegrass but a lot of folkies too so yeah. it's, it's usually very quiet but man when you guys played it was a lot of hooting and hollering <laughs> and ju- just how you want it to be you know just the real yeah. good yeah you know, the real I, good energy i always tell people i said if you don't know anything about bluegrass and say somebody played a del mccurry record for somebody and they, yeah. go, they would think well, I like the music, but boy, the singing is different, and you know, it would, you'd have a maybe a questionable reaction to it. But I always tell people if you come and experience that show, and you see and hear the music together with watching Dell, how he entertains an audience and includes, you know, he never leaves the audience out of the show, which is what I always said back then, and still to this day, he takes a lot of requests, and so that kind of interaction is. Uh, it's kind of rare in bluegrass, but that's what that's the way those guys are. They don't have a set list; they just go out there and do what they do. You know that that's actually something that I've always thought about is because part of the cool thing about seeing that era of the band was, or even even now today, but definitely with you, was the professionalism and the the sleekness and the the sophistication that you guys brought to the stage. But at the same time, Dell did like taking requests. 
So was that ever at odds for having this like really prepared, sleek show planned? And then at any given time, you might be called on to play a song that maybe you didn't even know or hadn't played in five years? Well, How did that work It's out? kind of interesting because we prided ourselves on knowing that catalog. Okay. All the way back to, you know, at that time, records that you couldn't hardly find. Now that everything's on CD and pretty much out there. Like Dixie Pals uh, era? Yeah, type you can find stuff on YouTube. You know, that's uh-huh. Take's Bluegrass Channel, if you're not familiar with it. But, oh, best thing on know, the internet. It's unbelievable. It's, it's on there. And he's got a live channel and he's got an uh, album channel. And the album channel just has just about every obscure bluegrass record you can't find. I'm, I'm on and, there every uh, day. <laughs> matter of fact, he just put some Jimmy Arnold on this weekend when I love Jimmy Arnold's playing and revisited some of those records. But uh, anyway, so, you know, with Dell, you know, you, what we were doing was we had his, when I started with him in 92, he was still playing all those mom and pop bluegrass festivals. Mm-hmm. And he had his lifelong career long fans that knew all the music from those records. And then you had all these young new people coming into the music. And we really saw a shift when Jerry Garcia passed away that all, a lot of deadheads and um, just taper type uh, live show recording people were hanging around and coming in because it was easy to access the music kind of looking they, for a new home yeah they, to do and they, they studied did. the music and so you know we kind of prided ourselves on having like new material that was uh, reaching a new generation in a way but we st- he still had all these old songs that people love to hear and that's the thing yeah. about Del McCurry is that he just has great taste in songs and he had a his body of material to draw from is just fantastic you know so we, we went to California one time and we had these guys that were just good friends of ours and uh, they would follow and come to every show. It's like they came as a pack, you know, and they challenged us to play a hundred different songs over the course of maybe five or six nights that we were playing and they were coming to every show and they were writing like all no the repeats. No, well, we could repeat them, but uh, we just wanted to expand it out to a hundred songs right. over the given right. six or seven nights, you know. And we got pretty close. We did like, I don't know, 60, 70, 80 songs, I think. Oh, man. And some of the nights when we would do two shows, um, you know, even Dell would never do the second. Sh- he'd do the second show like a second set. It, would, it wouldn't be like the first show that we did. We have mm. sort of a regular set planned out, you know, like he would go through the first, and he still does this to this day. The first 10 songs basically is introducing the band and start off with a trio song or a fiddle instrumental and then, you go into a couple of songs and then he introduces each band member and they step up and do a song. Okay. And then from there it goes to whatever the latest thing is. And then from there he interacts with the crowd and takes requests, you know? Yeah. So, um, but those guys had a list of songs and we're keeping a list of songs at the same time. So, and so that was just part of the expectation of you as one of the boys was to do a lot of your homework and go back to this early stuff. Yeah. And- well, you know, when you, when you work for somebody like that, Del McCurry or Doyle Lawson or, uh, the Osborne brothers, uh, whoever it is, you know, you have to inform yourself of all the music that they've made. And you know, like I said, you're playing in front of several different generations of fans. So there's people that know the new stuff. And then there's the people that want to hear the music that they grew up or they remember when they first got into it or, were, you know, became close to it. And so, um, you know, it's really important to do that. On top of that, when you have a job like that, you have to inform yourself as to what Del McCurry's music is based on, you know, where does he come from? He comes from the tradition of Flatten Scruggs, Earl Scruggs, Reno and Smiley, Bill Monroe, of course. Mm-hmm. You have to absorb all that music. You have to listen to all of it because if you want to play his music the way that he hears it and plays it, 
you have to inform yourself of where it comes from. Sure. And so that's all we did, you know, was learning all those old songs. And we, that's all we would listen to was live old bluegrass tapes of all those guys. And then it informed what we did with Dell later. So we did a lot of listening. I remember Jason Carter learned every great traditional fiddle break there ever was on every Flat and Scruggs <laughs> record. He could play them all, you yeah. know? Yeah. Well, speaking of informing people about people's roots and, and where they're from, people might be raising an eyebrow of why do I have this bass playing guy <laughs> on the banjo podcast? So for anybody who doesn't know, Mike Bubb was originally a banjo player, which means you're, you're still a banjo player at heart, right? Yeah. I, I started my career as a poor banjo player. <laughs> and ended it as what? Uh, 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 yeah, uh, a hobby banjo player, you know? <laughs> It really took a back seat to, uh, to my bass playing side of my career, basically because it's hard to switch between the two instruments. The bass is a very physical instrument. It kind of ruined my banjo hands. You know, the oh, banjo wow. is a delicate instrument. It takes finesse to play it well and get a good sound and tone. And the bass is a lot more aggressive and physical. And so my, my hands got muscled up and they get stiff from playing the bass for so many years, you know. It's so just when you, too much. When you go back to the banjo, you know, you're playing like with a claw, you know, and just <laughs> grabbing at the strings. And it's just hard to balance the two. There's some people that probably can. Uh, but uh, playing the way that I did with Dell, like we didn't have a, I didn't ever hardly mic the bass after right. we went to two microphones. We were just playing on two microphones, the five of us, yeah, including the bass. So you have to really put out. And it's, an, you know, like I say, it's a physical um expression but uh yeah i started out playing the banjo uh about 13 years old yeah how did you discover that i started and i was going to high school in scottsdale arizona my parents have always been into music and they had a, a lot of variety in the record collection mm -hmm. and part of it was the folk era stuff of the early 60s so they had a uh, kingston trio and then some of these other sort of budget bluegrass records uh, okay. that you find on star day records they had a bunch of those and they grew up in california and i was born in california but they also had you know big band music which was what they listened to in high school the benny goodman and glenn miller and that kind of stuff yeah yeah that's good stuff and and really the music all kind of relates but for some reason the banjo and the bluegrass really caught my ear out of that record collection and i remember when dueling banjos came out as a radio hit from deliverance uh -huh. I mean, it was on the radio all the time. It was huge. Wow. And um, so I heard that a lot. And, you know, banjo is uh, it's a unique instrument in the way that it just grabs people, I think. You yeah. Know? But when you hear somebody play one really well, it's, a very, um, it's very attractive and it's uh, compelling, you know. So I just got drawn in like <laughs> anybody else does. It gets hooked on banjo. You yeah. Know? So we had a couple of instruments laying around the house. Uh, all my brothers and two brothers and my sister everybody played a little bit of music but are i was those, only one. are those older siblings yeah i'm the youngest okay and uh so like my sister uh when she was growing up she was into the beatles and the monkeys and pet clark you know in the 60s uh but then she got into john denver so i was hearing a lot of that and then my brother my older brother played piano and um he had a couple of girlfriends down through the years that, that sang and he would accompany her accompany them in our living room you know oh, yeah so I was hearing music and being around it and always sort of interested in music. And uh, my next older brother, he, he played trumpet throughout high school in like a stage band. And, and so he had a lot of musician friends. He's a year and a half older than me. And most of them are all jazz musicians. So I used to, I got a real interest in jazz music at, at that age as well. But it was the banjo that really 
caught my ear. And so I made a deal with my mom to go find some lessons, you know, and I had a, it's like an old open back Washburn banjo that I started out on. Okay. And you mentioned deliverance, but at that point, was there any other music that was catching your ear that you got into? You well, said Kingston Trio too. The first three records that I ever bought were the Doolin Banjos soundtrack. Yeah. The Ventures, 20 great, 20 golden hits of the <laughs> Ventures, which had a fold out album cover with a, a blonde woman laying there in a gold lame bikini, which I thought was just fantastic. Yeah. But it was instrumental music. I really liked that, you uh-huh. know. And then I bought uh, nothing from uh, nothing from nothing by uh, 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 Billy. Um, oh, it'll come to me. Somebody will say it. <laughs> uh, but anyway, those are the first three records I bought. So one okay. was like soul, one was like rock guitar instrumentals, and one was bluegrass. You know, had bluegrass uh-huh. content. But it was the banjo was kind of the beacon that I kind of kept going towards. And when you started taking lessons, it was. Scrug style mostly. The first guy we found was uh, he was a folk musician mostly. His name was Steve Kelsey. He had a little studio in Scottsdale where he taught guitar, but he was mostly a folk musician. And uh, so he started me out uh, playing, you know, easy banjo instrumentals in the in the finger pick style and scrug style. Um, I remember the first tune I learned was banjo in the hollow. Uh, Doug Dillard, very basic uh, arrangement, <laughs> you know, but. He tabbed it out for me, and that's how I learned to, you know, read tab. You know, this stuff. You know, he, he basically kind of taught me all he knew and then started me down more of a frailing road because hmm. he knew a little bit of that. So he was just trying to keep me learning stuff. Doing something, yeah. But I was really concentrating on that scrug, scrug style. I really wanted to learn that. Mm. And so I kind of met a, at a, hit a crossroads from the first set of lessons that I took. And then... My sister was at a company party at a, one of the resort hotels where they have an outdoor barbecue, this and that, and they had a bluegrass band playing there. Okay. And she went up to the banjo player and said, my brother's looking for a teacher to learn how to play uh, you know, five-string banjo. Bluegrass, yeah. And, uh, she, and he said, well, just give him my number. And his name was Chris Buechler, and uh, they had a bluegrass band. It's like you know, local guys that played, mm-hmm. and they Got party gigs and a few bar gigs here and there, but uh, sounds like he was at least a little more advanced than your yes. first teacher. Well, he maybe. was an actual bluegrass banjo right guy. You know that's what he was into, and he had a bluegrass band. And those guys played a lot of the older than the way type stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, he was about I guess he's seven years older than me, and uh, so I got his number and we connected, and then I would go over and take a lesson. My dad would drive me. I couldn't drive at the time. My dad would drive me over there, and he'd, he'd mix a big martini and a big tumbler. <laughs> And it was always the part of the week when he got his Time magazine. And so he'd drive me over there and he'd have a cocktail and read his Time magazine while I was getting this banjo lesson and then drive me home. And went from 30-minute lesson to an hour to next thing I know is there an hour and a half, two hours. And my dad was just like, just call me when you want to come home and I'll come back and pick you up. You know, So we would hang out and we would play banjo for hours, you know. Uh. How cool. And as it developed, we learned how to play twin banjo arrangements, and we learned all these tunes together, and we would uh, play almost every instrumental that we knew we were learning. We would learn, I'd learn how to play a harmony part to it. Sounds like it turned more into just a jam session than a well, lesson. Well, we became like family, you mm-hmm. know, but we kept that appointment every week. We would get together, if not more, and uh, we ended up going to some music festivals together, and like I said, it was became like family, like brothers, you know, and uh, really enjoyable. So the first jam session I was ever in was at his house with his band. And I was just, okay. you know, sitting there in a chair trying to apply myself to it. And he kind of coached me through it and what it was like. And, uh, and another thing that he did was uh, 
he had a really good record collection. He was buying re- a lot of records and, and got me inspired into buying records. So I was buying like two records a week at one point, <laughs> yeah. just trying to catch up. And before I could drive, actually, I went somewhere in there. I was 15 years old and uh, Pete Wernick uh, had a week-long banjo camp in uh, Cannon Beach, Oregon. It was really the very first of its type for banjo. There was no other workshops like that that I know. There was the Puget Sound Guitar Workshop. They might have had banjo there, but Pete Wernick was the first guy to ever do a full five-day thing. And this would be comparable to what we have now, like Banjo Camp North. Now they're everywhere. Right, right. It was the very beginning of that. Most of the people there, I was the youngest person there, 15. Everybody else Uh was like a a professional of some sort who went there as a hobbyist, you know, but I was serious about it. And uh, he took a, a real liking to me and took a lot of extra time with me personally to teach me stuff and and we worked up a bunch of things that week and i remember we played at the there's a bar there in the little town it's just a little mm-hmm. sleepy coastal oregon town and uh, i've got some pictures from it and it uh, just really inspired me to what potentially i could do you know were you a fan of his were you pretty familiar with well the reason i, I went because i i knew who he was through the first hot rise record and of course uh, one of the first books that i bought aside from the earl scruggs book was uh, Pete's book, uh, Bluegrass Banjo. Yeah. And I love that book because it had these great photographs in it. But it also had all these tablatures for tunes that weren't just regular tunes. They had all the, a bunch of his tunes from the Country Cooking records. So, okay. so I bought all those records. And then his first solo album, uh, which had Tim O'Brien on it, mm-hmm. um, which they called it the Niwot Sound. And that sort of morphed into the Hot Rise band yeah. from that first solo album that he made. So I kind of got into that. So I went to that workshop two years in a row. It was five days. And my parents, they own their own business, so they, they couldn't take me on vacation. We didn't go on vacation. They just worked. And, they, and at that time, they were just you know buried into their business. And they said, what do you want to do? I said, like, I'd like to go to this banjo workshop I saw in Bluegrass Unlimited. So they just put you on a plane? and Well, my dad took me to Portland. Okay. And uh, he had a relative up there that gave us a big tour of the city for like two or three days. Mm-hmm. And we went all over uh, Western Oregon. And then my dad flew home and I got in a, and w- what we did was we went to the uh, hot rise concert. They were playing in Portland and then Pete was going to go out to the coast to teach this workshop. Yeah. And uh, so we went to the hot rise concert and then afterward I got in a car with Pete and drove out there with him oh, to the coast. That must've been great. And I just, I was just chewing his ear the, oh, the entire way. And he was <laughs> so kind and patient with me because I was so inquisitive and we just talked the entire way. And that's before he ever heard me play a note, you know, but he knew that I was so interested in it, you know? Yeah. And uh, he gave me a lot of great advice, you know, and, and told me a lot of great stories. And because I was asking him about different banjo players and stuff that I was interested in. And, you know, he knew all these people. He was, you know, really the first real professional I got to really get close to and talk to, you know? That's real cool. You must have been progressing pretty quickly then because eventually, you, and I'm probably skipping ahead a bit, you ended up placing a couple times over at Winfield, which is... Yeah, yeah. I went to uh, Winfield about five times, uh-huh. and uh, I placed two times when I was there. But the first time I went, uh, I was about 16, I guess. I ended up winning two banjos there. I still have one of them, was a, is an Ohm uh, Monarch, Monarch banjo. You remember anything you played or what well, when I started, arrangements you made? When I started going... Well, in Arizona, the, the festivals at that time were mostly based around picking contests, mm-hmm. and they would have like one feature band that would come and judge all the contests and do, you know, play a set or two each day. 
And then uh, everybody would compete in these different, you know, old time banjo or old time fiddle or old time string band, bluegrass band, bluegrass banjo, mandolin, flat pick guitar, all those different uh, categories. And so for years, that's all I really knew was uh, either jamming or going to these picking contests. And that's kind of how I came up. Mm -hmm. So I went there to uh, a, a little town called Wickenburg, Arizona. That's where they have the Four Corners State Championship Festival. It's still going on to this day. And I, went, I went 10 years before I finally won that contest because I kept bringing people over there that I, I would meet along the way. Yeah. I think Ron Block won it one year. Uh, <laughs> I brought Billy Constable over there one year, and he smoked everything. But uh, that's kind of how I made a living for a little while. And uh, so right in the middle of the mid-'80s, early-'80s, uh, after I, I graduated high school in 1982, and uh, I went out to South Plains College for two semesters. Oh. At that time, Alan Mundy wasn't there yet. Okay, I was just going to uh, ask that, yeah. So after two semesters there, I decided I wanted to get out and play, you know, so uh -huh. I went out for a year and a half and played and traveled around. And then I went back to school for a year and a half, but all in there, I was entering picking contests and that kind of stuff. And yeah. I was very fortunate. My parents were very supportive of me. They, my dad used to say, you got to find your groove and get in it. You know, <laughs> they allowed me to travel on my own. You know, I yeah. had a little S10 Chevy. I drove that thing all over the country and this is 40 years ago. I've driven literally hundreds of thousands of miles across this country, yeah. you know, starting doing that, yeah. know, playing in contests. So in 85, I went to uh, Nacogdoches, Texas. I drove out there, and that was Alan Mundy's banjo contest, National Banjo uh -huh. cha Championship. And I think they only had the festival two years. I won it the first year, and Ron Block won it the second year because nice. we went back out there. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, you make, I made $500 cash. I won a, a Stelling uh, Staghorn banjo. I got 10 sets of strings and a giant trophy. Yeah. Know? So And just some was, bragging rights. It was a pretty good yeah. run. <laughs> and uh, a bunch of other stuff happened during that time, too. I, I, was, I had known Stuart Duncan. I met him in 82 at South Plains College. He came through with a band he was playing with and met him. And uh, so after that, we kind of got to know him a little bit. And the Nashville Bluegrass Band had just made a record and they went to China that year and the records were pressed in Phoenix. So they asked me if I could bring, you know, six boxes of records out there. They were coming back from China and the, and the <laughs> record had just, was just coming out when they got back. Yeah. So that, I, that was another reason that I went there was I had this, you know, this job to do, deliver right. these records to the uh, Nashville Bluegrass Band. That's cool. So how, how, did such a promising young banjo player get so derailed and misguided into <laughs> playing the bass? It must Giving have been it all right on that time. Giving it all up. Yeah. Well, um, as we went along, you know, as I went along, the second time I went back to South Plains College, uh, Ron Block came out there. Mm -hmm. And uh, another fellow named Eric Uglum from Southern California was our good buddy. And he was a great flat picker and he was uh, into... Uh, Stanley Brothers, and so we we jammed and played all the time. We went around as a trio and played a bunch. Yeah, but Ron, I always sort of deferred to him as the better banjo player. So I ended up playing bass. Okay, and uh, so as a little trio, we I'd play the bass. We sang trios together, and and again continued going around to different festivals and picking contests and stuff, and just basically knocking around. And then uh, we went to we got in a a band contest at Wickenburg, Arizona. And we pulled in Butch Baldessari to play mandolin with us, and we won the contest. 
And we thought, well, wow, now we've got a band. We can go out and play shows. Well, I lived in Phoenix and Butch lived in Las Vegas and uh, Ron and Eric lived in Southern California. So we were like in a six hour triangle away from each other. So when I was at South Plains College, Eric and Ron and I made a record and we talked the school into buying, uh, bringing Stuart Duncan out to do a workshop at the school and while he was there play on our record oh okay so we made a our very first cassette is the three of us ron eric and myself with Stuart duncan playing mandolin and fiddle on it that's how we got started basically i started sending the tape around and, and that was not weary hearts yet that was weary hearts it was yeah. weary hearts mm -hmm. okay and we you know we kicked around a bunch of different na band names we finally came up with weary hearts from uh we played a lot of stanley brothers songs uh -huh. sang a bunch of them and so this weary heart you stole away is where that name of the band okay. came from. So then once we won that contest, uh, we pulled Butch in and then we and um, and we just started, that's how we got started playing. And so I played the bass and and we had a four piece bluegrass band. Yeah, you know, voila. When you started getting a bit more serious at that point about the bass, do you have any recollection of how your knowledge of the banjo or your banjo experience? Well, Help, the bass you do that. The bass, the guitar, and the banjo are all related by tuning, so they all three relate easily. Uh, you could play the bass; it's the four bottom strings of a guitar. Uh, the guitar is, you know, five strings of the banjo or four strings of it. So uh, there's a lot of similarities there, and so they, they sort of cross pollinate each other very well. You can pick one up from the other yeah. and kind of adapt to it. Not so much with the fiddle or mandolin because the tuning of a bass is about the opposite of a violin. So yeah. the the intervals of the strings. So just kind of stuck with the guitar, the banjo, and the bass. So there, if you cluster those together, I was playing all three of them. Yeah. And, but because I got into a band situation, I started playing the bass. Now, what was really helpful to me uh, in playing the bass was that uh, when you play the five-string banjo or the mandolin or the fiddle, you learn repertoire. You're learning tunes. You're learning breaks and solos to all these songs. Right. And you're constantly learning the repertoire. And so... I already knew how all these songs went. So when I go to play the bass, I knew the chord changes to everything. So I just had to learn how to get a good sound out of the instrument and learn uh -huh. how to play it, you know. Uh, the very first time I ever played the bass on a show, my buddy Chris Buechler, who was my early mentor, yeah, his band was playing a gig somewhere and they didn't have a bass player or the bass player couldn't make it. And he said, uh, he said here, take this bass and here's a tape of these eight songs we're going to play. He said, go learn these songs. You're going to play bass with us on the show in two weeks. I was going to ask how how long in advance you had two weeks. Yeah, okay. so I took the bass song. I guess it was two. I can't remember. It was you know a couple weeks out. It wasn't that afternoon or something. So you know he trusted <laughs> me enough to you know he this guy's got plenty of time and go learn this you know so and that's how I got started was I learned those songs and I played uh, behind his band uh, probably was about fifteen or sixteen and uh, that's how I got started doing playing the bass. Now I didn't really playing in Weary Hearts like took it to a whole nother level because I was just playing all the time then you know uh -huh. it's the banjo started to take more of a back seat and i didn't enter i didn't have you know as i started playing as a professional and not entering contests anymore i was just playing more bass all the time so aside from the mechanics like the the tuning of the bass and do you think that there's something about having played the banjo that made you a better rhythmic partner well aside to, from the repertoire yeah. there's the dynamics of it all like yeah. how to drive underneath a, uh, a banjo right tune you know how to swell in between uh vocals uh verses you know or vocal lines and that mm -hmm. kind of thing you do the same thing with a banjo you know you back in you back out yeah the bass has to rise and fall the same way you know so i had that sort of 
I, I knew how that stuff went. And so those other things kind of came natural to me in playing the bass, uh, the dynamics of it, you know, and what to play underneath uh, those instruments and those tunes, you know, like, like the upside down D chord where you play the A, D, A, D instead of uh, just a straight D chord on the bass. But I knew that because I was listening to those records and listening to Flat and Scruggs and, you know, Foggy Mountain Banjo. Uh And I was paying attention to all of that stuff, you know, hearing just the way they play those notes against it. And those things are important to inform the tune. Um, The way that those guys played it, you you have to take notice of all those little, the the little uh, minutiae in in those cuts, you know. If if you can, go through a few of those and maybe strategies for how to play behind a, a banjo player and, and what you can do and how exactly those things well, will, some, will affect a listener's perception of what's happening. There, there's some things about playing the bass, like the, just the rhythmic sense of a tune, say like Foggy Mountain Banjo, mm-hmm. or uh, Foggy Mountain... Uh, ch- uh, which one? <laughs> Breakdown? The- no, the... Uh, you know. What is that one? Um, special. Foggy Mountain Special. Thank you very much. <laughs> I was blanking so, there for a second. I'm too. so out of it, banjo-wise. Anyway, <laughs> so a tune like that, you know, you can cut the notes off on the bass. Don't, 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 or you can let them ring. Don't, 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 don't. And you learn how to make that sound, whether it's going to swing more or if it's going to be more of a sharp bluegrass-type rhythm. Yeah. And uh, so those are all things that you, you learn and you think about, you know, like, again, in the rhythm and the dynamics of how you play. So a tune like that, it goes from just being a two-beat two bar to playing a walking rhythm underneath it, too. Mm-hmm. So today, like when I play it with somebody, I'll play the first, I think it's a double break, take a double solo. Yeah. So the first time I play it straight. And then the second time, I walk the bass underneath it. Straight meaning ones just, and fives. Yeah, two and, beat. Yeah, yeah, just two beat. And so, so it gives everybody a chance as they're going around and you're playing the solos. Everybody gets to play it sort of both ways. You're going to play it like like the old record, and then uh-huh. you play it's like a, you know, a more swing type break underneath yeah. the two or blues. You know, so I think about those things. You know, in playing behind a banjo player, and then also um, I learned uh, early on playing underneath uh, fiddle players. If you move the bass, instead of going dong dong dong, and play the uh, the uh, triad dong 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 dong, move the bass underneath a fiddle player. They they really play to that, and huh. uh, uh, I really like that sound. It's not uh, it's still two beat, but you're playing different notes instead of just playing one five one five. Yeah, um, it's 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 just something that that works, and the, and in a lot of vocal tunes, the same thing. You know, you just kind of learn these things become more instinctive as it goes along right a common thing that i'm asked about when i interact with listeners is is they ask about playing ahead of the beat and behind the beat mm-hmm. and how banjo players can manipulate that talk about that i guess what what effect you notice when you're playing with banjo players who are maybe ahead or or behind and how does that affect you and how do you maybe resist the temptation to well there's, there's so many pull, different rhythms in bluegrass yeah you know, uh, it's funny being in this town in Nashville. This is a Bill Monroe, Flatten Scruggs town, Jim and Jesse. Okay. The, the, that's, that informs a lot of the bluegrass in this town. Ralph Stanley, the Stanley Brothers is not really from this region, you know. So if you go back, now it's everywhere. I mean, it's, I mean, everybody loves that music and plays it, of course. 
But uh, I learned when I got here the, dis- the different feels of those bands, how they sound, how they're different, how they approach rhythm and the banjo styles. You know, so getting to be around somebody like Alan Shelton, the way that he played, sort of on top of the beat. You know, he had a real sort of bounce, and I mean, he's always yeah. you know, that, that that word bounce you hear applied to him a lot. Yeah. Uh, because he he played like a he had so many influences in his playing uh, that he played like a piano sometimes and a steel guitar and he blended it all together. But he, if you listen to those Jim Eanes records where he had the pull string banjo, right? I mean, it's just pure country playing, you know. <laughs> and uh, it's just a different feel. And then uh, of course uh, the Osborne brothers and Sonny Osborne, he really followed the Scruggs pattern. But again, he was influenced by these other instruments as he grew and grew as a player. That eventually he was pulling in steel guitar licks and piano licks and different things and applying it. You know, I'm trying to get back to our original question. Just it's, players who play oh, oh, ahead yeah, of the beat of the or beat, right yeah. on the beat. So or... regionally, you know, there's different there's different feels. Like uh, yeah. you go to North Carolina and Virginia, they play a different feel. I'm talking about contemporary bluegrass now, especially. Um, the the downbeat is very hard. You know, they call it mash or they call yeah. it. Uh, they always, you know, their head always moves like, you know, <laughs> and, and, and the music here is a little different. The feel of it's different, you know, like it's very different to hear the way the Stanley sound is. It's the way they play the rhythm guitar. The guitars ring out. They don't do a lot of runs. They don't do a lot of bass. It's just a boom, jang, boom, jang, boom, jang, you know, whereas you go to Virginia and it's like, you know, it's like the they really thing. lay down that yeah. downbeat. So you kind of have to learn how to navigate all that if, when you play with these different guys that that have those tendencies, you know, and, but not everybody plays the same. So you have to kind of be aware of that and, and know when to lay into it or lay out of it. You know, so if you listen to, uh, uh, Jimmy Martin, Widowmaker, the very original cut of Widowmaker, the notes of the bass are so short. It's like, don't, 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 don't. 2,800 RPMs were showing on the tack. But no one knew this was the last long ride for Billy Mack. Widowmaker, Widowmaker, only Bill could understand. Was going to make a widow out of pretty wonderland. You don't really notice it if you're not paying attention, but... They're probably the shortest notes ever recorded in bluegrass <laughs> on the bass. <laughs> right. And but it just makes for the feel of the song, the rhythm of the song, you know. And of course there's a there's a snare with brushes in the background too. But it's uh it's just a way that it it sounds. And so a lot of times a bass player can use just the length of the note to to really inform a song. So later in years, like Bill Monroe, when he played Uncle Penn, it's in the key of A. And you play that low note, you let it ring. You let everything ring out. You know, you don't cut it off. It was just the way that the rhythm felt on it. And it's hard to describe. You have to really tune in and listen to it. Yeah. And I was very fortunate to have an experience of being able to be up close and personal 
to hear it and feel it, you know, right. what, what that is. I imagine it's also really important to just do a lot of trial and error with your own playing. What happens if I do this? Oh, that, yeah. this changed or that changed. Well, you know, there's another, there's another thing that happens like when a guitar player puts a capo on. I, I, you know, a lot of guitar players, when they, when you go key of E, the meaning they, they put the capo on and they want to play out of D or they want to play out of C. Mm-hmm. A lot, of, especially if you're a flat pick type player, you probably wouldn't play out of open E because it's difficult. <laughs> it's not, it's not, uh, you don't have a lot of open strings. There's more wrong notes to. <laughs> well, you don't have a lot of open strings, yeah. you know, it doesn't lay out as a flat pick type pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, but playing out of the key of wide open on a guitar, the key of E and playing uh you know out of d or c with a capo is totally different sure. you know uh they get a totally different feel so and that can inform your bass playing so you know if somebody's playing out of a big fat e chord where they're strumming all six strings this big full sound mm-hmm. you know you can cut they're gonna ring you can cut the note off and really oh uh, you know pull it together interesting um whereas if you're playing out of d it would be a whole nother type of thing and yeah. um and then there's also tempo, like, and timing is like a, such a unique thing. I, pl- I played one time with J.D. Crow, like one or two songs at IBMA, I remember, on stage. And he played Train 45. Uh-huh. And I came off the stage and I said, J.D., I said, that is where that song should be played. I said, everybody wants to play that thing in the wind, you know, and play it hard uh-huh. and fast as they can. He goes, he goes, you're right. He said, it sounds fast, but it's not. <laughs> and you know that when you talk about JD Crow's timing, that's it right there. Uh-huh. It's like uh, and how fast? How fast was it? Do you guess? I, I don't know. It just wasn't like no, 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 no. You know, it wasn't yeah. just like head banging. It was you could hear every note he was playing. Yeah. And he didn't have you know it was in such a good groove that the tempo didn't matter. You right. know, it was so good. It didn't matter that it wasn't as fast as some you know, you know people normally play it or make it into a tornado of a, right. of a banjo notes, you know. Yeah. And, and a lot of times when you listen to the old, say, Earl Scruggs playing that as a closer, you know, a closer theme on the Opry or a live tape or whatever, a lot of times those tapes are sped up. They're not at the right, they're not oh. at the correct speed. So I think sometimes some of that may influence the way some people play them. Oh, you know? I'm sure. But there's the, the, the whole attitude in bluegrass, like you close a show, you got to play something hot and fast, you know. I mean, that's what Dell always did. We would get to the last song and then Rob just go into train 45 and it'd speak. Oh man. You know, killing it. But that playing with JD had really that really pointed something out to me that anything will sound good if it has a great groove to it. And uh, you know, playing a banjo rhythmically well is a that's half of the battle, if not more, to get your three fingers in sync and in timing together mm-hmm. without, you know, like guitar players sometimes have that boom chadla, boom chadla. Where they emphasize the rhythm, and it's in, in, you can't really play against that very well uh, with a banjo. But you know, if you played with somebody like Jimmy Martin, he just had a certain roll sound that he wanted behind his singing. You know, yeah, and almost a honky tonk sound, really, because all of his records had brushes on them, snare brushes. You know, yeah. so it's 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 a lot to think about. You know, a long note, a short note, and if you want to move the notes, be moving. And when you start moving on the bass, you know, like if the melody goes up, I go up with the melody. Melody goes down, you try to go back down with it to the okay. lower notes. There's other bands like, uh, like I say, these contemporary bluegrass bands where they tend to play the lowest note possible all the time on the bass. They want the biggest, fattest, lowest note they can get. Yeah, and uh, it's like I, a bass drop in club music, <laughs> right? Yeah, almost, yeah, <laughs> almost. And uh, I try to avoid that. I try to use more <laughs> of, you know, just a little bit more color in it, you know. Yeah. And I also, you know, I'm also a real traditional kind of player. And uh, so the people that I really 
enjoyed listening to growing up were like George Shuffler, who walked the bass over mm -hmm. everything. Uh, Jerry McCurry had a really big influence on me in, in learning how to snap and slap the bass in between playing just straight 2-4 beat. And he was the king of that, you know, and still is. He's like the last of the great blue-collar, bluegrass bass men, you know, because that's who he learned from was Jake Tulloch and, and George Shuffler. And the seeing, original guys. Yeah, yeah. seeing those guys play, that informs all of his playing. So I took, when I went to work for Dell, I took what I could from him and what I'd already known and kind of put it together and just into whatever I do. And, um, and then it worked with those guys because and it, we eventually, we just worked so much together, you know. You hear about the Beatles playing six hours a night, you know, before they ever- In Hamburg or whatever. Yeah, yeah. In Hamburg and, and, you know, you think about that. Bands don't have that kind of experience anymore. There's not that much work anymore. Mm -hmm. You think about Flat and Scruggs, they were really only together 15 years pretty much. But they played so much. They played every day. They had a radio show. They had a TV show. They had shows. They had the Opry. Yeah. They played every day multiples, as, as yeah, a band. Multiples per day, right? Now everybody's yeah. at home practicing, uh, working on that gig they got coming up this week, you know? And it's just not the same. It's not the same as getting in there and just really playing together and, again, informing those different instruments and the rhythm and the dynamics of it all. So you mentioned J.D. Crow is having that really great feeling type of pocket and note separation yeah you've played with everyone in town are, are is there anyone else who comes to mind that has uh, has created that same type of of pocket or maybe not the same type well, but another you know, all the greats all yeah. the greats are that way but they just have their own sort of approach to it and filter uh -huh. you know by influenced by their music so you know when i first started out the first records that i got of course first thing i wanted to learn was foggy mountain breakdown mm -hmm. The only record that I could find that had that on there was Earl Scruggs Review Live at Kansas State. And I didn't really like that record at that time mm -hmm. because it was uh, it was like, a, you know, they were an electric country band. And I was just like, well, that's not bluegrass. You know, what's Earl thinking? You know, but I, I wasn't very well informed and I was just learning, you know, so I even my early opinions were way off. Of, yeah. You know, <laughs> I didn't I, I didn't know how to listen to it yeah. properly. You know, I hadn't learned enough or heard enough. But slowly, as I started buying records and listening, it kind of took me down to different places that I wanted to go. And uh, I was buying up, like I said, the music that was in that bluegrass banjo book of Pete Warnick's. I bought the country cooking records, and I learned a bunch of those tunes out of his book. And some of those are tunes that I played in the contest because I realized in the contest picking, everybody played the same songs. Mm -hmm. The two keys to a, a successful contest is have a high number so you don't play first and have something that nobody else is playing nobody so you're gonna yeah. stand out and uh, so that's what i did i had about four or five tunes that i played and a couple of them were pete's tunes out of his book and i just developed a few solos for him and and uh, used those from the contest and then at the same time i was uh, when i was a teenager i could go to these uh, concerts at our local performing arts center and get a six dollar ticket as a student ticket okay and we had a great jazz series. So I was going and seeing all these great jazz guys. Huh. And I was buying some of those records. And um, I got into that. And if I had a YouTube, I'd probably end up being a jazz guitar player. But uh, I just stuck with a banjo. Uh, eventually, you know, I was collecting records and I'm buying music and listening to different stuff. And then Bela Fleck's first record, Crossing the Tracks, came across the Savannah, you know? <laughs> and it just absolutely blew my mind because right. it started with Dear Old Dixie and it ended with Chick Corea, Spain. Yeah. And that was every, and everything in between those two things 
just absolutely blew my mind. And I couldn't believe that this guy had figured out a way to put those two things together. Because I was familiar with Chick Corea and I was familiar with uh, uh, Return to Forever and all that different stuff. I think that's the band he was in. Yeah. Um, and I was hearing some of that, you know, that music and I couldn't believe this guy was playing it on the banjos and I liked it, you know, so I kind of pursued him a little bit as a, uh, at, the, at that time. And also, uh, another record that really blew my mind was Tony Trishka's Banjo Land record, okay. which one side was traditional in the sense that it was uh, straight bluegrass, but it was Tony Rice and David Grisman. It's actually the, the David Grisman Rounder album band. It's the same band. It's a different session with the same guys. Plus the banjo, I think they cut yeah. it the same week, you know? Okay. And, uh, and, the, and of course, he was connected to those country cooking records that I was buying yeah. that were associated with Pete's book. So I was putting all these dots together, and mm -hmm. it turned out that Bela was Tony's student. And, <laughs> you know, so I just went down this path of finding all this music. And, uh, but, but that first uh, Bela record just, it really set me on fire because I knew like now there was just all kinds of potential on this instrument, you know. Hey, everyone. Keith here. I was just chilling in my backyard studio again and thought I need to tell everyone about our great, great sponsors. The first is Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation is a streaming site to take courses in banjo, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, dobro, upright bass, uke, and through those courses you can learn bluegrass, old time, and plenty of other styles from some of the best instructors in all of Roots music. PegheadNation.com features a great lineup of banjo instruction. Here are some of the courses. Beginning bluegrass banjo with Bill Evans. You know him. He also teaches bluegrass banjo. You can learn Clawhammer Banjo with Evie Layden, Wade Ward-style banjo with Bruce Molsky, the banjo according to Danny Barnes, or contemporary bluegrass banjo with Wes Corbett. Now, each of these courses include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. And the bonus feature of these is that just by being a listener of Picky Fingers, you can get your first month free. Just go to pegheadnation.com, use the promo code PICKYFINGERS at checkout, and you'll get to sample any of these for absolutely free. Picky Fingers is also brought to you in part by Elderly Instruments up in Lansing, Michigan. We all know that it's so much cooler to support small independent businesses, and it really helps out when that independent business also happens to be the most knowledgeable and trusted source around for new used and vintage stringed instruments. And I'm talking, of course, about elderly instruments. They've been family owned and operated since 1972. And you can go to elderly.com to check out their wide selection of all stringed instruments. We're talking all the banjos and banjo accessories and learning products that you could ever want. But if you happen to have a hankering for Let's say electric guitar, acoustic guitar, fiddles, ukes, mandolins, they have all that too. So once again, just go to elderly.com or give them a call at 517-372-7880 to talk to one of their knowledgeable sales representatives. You know, I keep bragging about Michigan, but it's hard not to. If you drive from where a lot of the Motown records were recorded and you drive toward Kalamazoo, which is where all those pre-war Gibson banjos were made, Along the way, you get to Battle Creek, which is the home of GHS Strings, another sponsor of the show. You know, even those pre-war Gibson banjos, 
don't sound like much without a good set of strings on them. And GHS are some of the best, and you know that they're some of the best because they're the ones chosen by players such as Bela Fleck, J.D. Crow, Sonny Osborne, and me. I've been a user of their PF145 banjo set for quite a few years, and if you need strings for your guitar, mandolin, or any of those other instruments, they're going to have that too. So check out ghsstrings.com for their full selection. And uh, there was another record that Bela made uh, around that time, which was he was in a band called Tasty Licks. Mm-hmm. And the Anchor to the Shore record, uh, I think was their second album on Rounder. It's uh, Pat Enright and Mark Schatz and Jack Toddle and Bela playing banjo. Yeah. And the, that record, this, the banjo playing on there was so creative to me. And I like to have this kind of snappy and crispy sound. And, you know, his banjo had a different sound than it has now. Like now he plays with a little softer tone. Right. Maybe to blend Very better. dark. Yeah. yeah it plays better with more different types of instruments. It probably blends better. But back then, you know, he was kind of a neo-traditionalist, but he was so creative in what he was doing with these tunes. There's a version of Banjo Signal on there that's just, it's just, it's fantastic. You know, uh-huh. a little Don Reno tune. That's what he did with it. And that's the kind of stuff I really got into. Because at a certain point, there's just, you know, there's no sense in learning a bunch of songs you can't play with anybody else. You know? mm-hmm. It's like I asked Scott Vestal one time, I said, when... Uh, when Bela's uh, rock album came out, I forget what it was called. Uh, it was when he was in Newgrass Revival. But the Deviation? Deviation okay. album. I said, I said, did you ever, I said, what'd you think of that record? He goes, I learned every note on that record. He said, and as soon as I figured out that I could play it or figured out some of those tunes, he goes, I realized there was nobody that I could play any of this music with. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's, you know, well, is that a waste of time or what? Well, no, you're learning a bunch of stuff, but you know, if you can't play with anybody, then it's not as just fun. not quite as practical, maybe. But right, practical, it's exactly. still a fun that's challenge. That's the right word for it. So, <laughs> you know, I, I found myself in that situation. Like, uh, I found myself having to learn tunes that I could play with people. So I would take the things that I could grab onto. Yeah. You know, didn't go too far off the off the beaten path. But uh, then I started hearing different guys. You know, John Hickman was a gr- uh, around a lot. I saw him a bunch when I was living out west because he was in several bands out there in California before yeah. he moved to Oklahoma. And I see him a lot. And he really had his own sound and style as well. He had a, a very unique approach to the banjo and original. He had his own sort of licks. And that informed a bunch of people in Southern California. You know, Allison Brown took a lot of... Uh, Ron his, Block was a big Yeah, time. they both took a lot of inspiration yeah. from him. And... Uh, um, and then another guy that I, I finally got to meet after a long time I, uh, uh, was Craig Smith. And he was also from Southern California. Is he? Okay. And, uh, but he lives in North Carolina. Yeah. Mary, but he's a, pretty much a non-touring musician. He plays locally and he teaches. That's what he's done mostly. Yeah. In the last 10 or 15 years, he played a bunch with Lori Lewis on the road. He would play uh, festivals with her. But um, he's kind of an, another enigmatic guy. I remember the very first record that a band called Summer Wages made, and he played banjo on that. And I was playing, I was working for Bob Paisley at the time. I was 19, and uh, we were going to play uh, this festival in New York, at Shinhopple, New York, and I saw that Summer Wages was on the bill. Mm-hmm. I was just, I couldn't believe it. I was like, man, I get to see Craig Smith play. This is going to be great. And I get there, and we're there, and it turns out that Craig's quit the band. Oh, <laughs> So I was That's kind of disappointed, but it uh, turned out to be Steve Dilling. He's a good buddy of mine. I've known yeah. him for years, and, and uh, he had, he was the guy that replaced Craig on that record. But okay. Craig was just one of the most creative, interesting, traditional banjo players. Yeah, I love his solo album, and he's you know I've got a few other things that he's on, but yeah, he's just not quite as prolific as, mm-hmm. as some of the other 
yep. people that you think you gotta of. seek them out you know mm-hmm. but uh this pair of picks i got right here he gave me these are, Those uh, are from craig yeah pre-war nationals he gave me a set oh fantastic that you brought up bob paisley are you by any chance on that uh i, I didn't record with bob you didn't okay uh in my uh interim between the first time i went to south plains college and then i took a year and a half off and went out and played I knew the fiddle player in Bob's band. His name is Ward Stout. He lives here okay. in Nashville. After one year in college, I decided, you know what? I, I want to go out and play. And I think it's very common. Even p- people that go to Berkeley, you know, that they, they either never get a yeah, degree they, they or might they, not graduate, they, right? they, 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 they go into some specifics and then they go out and play. That's same thing happened to me. So I answered an ad in Bluegrass Unlimited. I wanted to get a gig with a, a working band, you know. So uh, I answered an ad and there was a band in Milwaukee, Wisconsin called Brew County Rounders. Okay. And uh, so I answered the ad and I sent them a tape. I was living in Phoenix or Scottsdale and uh, they hired me. And so I moved to Milwaukee. Without an audition or anything? No audition, just sent them a tape. Okay. And we talked back and forth. Yeah. And it turned out that they were kind of a local band. They, they, uh, they played uh, weddings and parties and some bars around there. And then they would do some regional festivals. They weren't really... What, I was looking for, I wanted to go to a bluegrass festival every weekend is what I was really wanting to do. <laughs> so I went, moved up there and, and it was a, you know, it was just another key piece of my experience of learning how to be in the music business. I'd never been in a band with women before. There was two, two gals in the band mm-hmm. and one was the singer and one was the fiddle players. And that's a different dynamic than I was used to. So I learned a lot there. Yeah. And then one day I get a call from my buddy Ward and he says, Hey, uh, you ought to come out here to, uh, Pennsylvania and audition with Bob Paisley. He said, I don't think this banjo player is going to stick around with us. And I said, well, okay, where do I, where do I got to go? And so he gave me all the coordinates. And so I got in my truck and I drove from Milwaukee to uh, Newark, Delaware, which is uh, oh, good just, grief. just yeah. uh, close to Philadelphia, Baltimore, between Philadelphia and Baltimore. Yeah. I went out there and I went out to Bob Paisley's house and I listened to a couple of his records on the way out there and I auditioned and played some music with him. And as I'm leaving his house, the phone rings and it's the banjo player, the banjo player's wife, actually. And she says, Randall's not going on the trip this weekend, so you'll need to get somebody. And he hangs up the phone. He goes, looks like you're going to Canada with us this weekend. And so two days your, later. Your buddy had a good tip. Yeah. yeah. Two days later, I got in a van and we went to Canada. And I'd already driven a thousand miles from Kalamazoo <laughs> or from Milwaukee to there. Yeah. And then I got in a van and went to Canada with him. Yeah. very next two days later yeah uh, that week i probably drove five thousand miles because <laughs> i had to go back and get all my stuff oh and, you had uh, to oh no so i auditioned they said you're gonna go with us this weekend we went to canada somewhere played my first shows with them and then they said well we'll, we'll use you if you want to keep playing with us i said all right i gotta go get my stuff yeah so i get and back that, in the car and i drive back to milwaukee uh, and get all my junk and then I gave those guys my notice. I said, I'm going to take this job. And then they said, well, we knew you really, that's what you really want to do. They, they were real understanding. And I'd actually got to know the, the guy that I replaced in that band, a guy named Rich Ziven. He lived down in Florida now. And we had a great friendship while I was there in Milwaukee. And we played a lot of banjos together, mm-hmm. just like my buddy Chris in, in Phoenix did. And, and uh, he took me to all the great little hole-in-the-wall restaurants in Milwaukee and little bars that had been there mm-hmm. forever. We had a good time in spite of not having a lot of work, you know. Yeah. Uh, but then I, Bob I, was more the speed that you were well, looking for. Gonna, I, I thought it was, you know, this was where I wanted to be, you know, the you know, legit bluegrass band on the road. So mm-hmm. 
I went to Kalamazoo and played my last gig with the Brew County Rounders. And then I drove to uh, back out to Delaware and uh, started playing with Bob. And I played the whole summer with him. And at the end of the summer, we went to Japan. I was 19 Whoa. and, and uh, my first time out of the country. And uh, that was the big carrot at the end of the summer was that we were going to do a tour of Japan. Do this big trip. And uh, so I got to go with him over there. And, and uh, there's some video of that on YouTube, Bob Paisley in Japan, like 1983 or four. Oh, that's cool. And uh, came back and there was no work. It was, a, that was like the end of the end of the seasons, basically. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what I was going to do. So I packed up and went back to Phoenix, told Bob, I said, I'm just decided, I think I'm just gonna go back home to the West Southwest. And yeah. he goes, I, I figured you might do that. <laughs> But you know, but you got to go to Japan. I went to Japan. Oh, that's yeah, great. had a great time over there, and just you know, another just wonderful experience. And again, I'm just starting out. I'm just green as you know anybody could ever be. But I was just taking it all in, and you know, made the made the best of everything. And so then I, that's when I decided to go back to school, and I went back for a year and a half or three semesters at South Plains. And the next thing was you know, yeah. developing the Weary Hearts Band with Ron and Eric, and. Uh, going from there switching to bass yeah and playing more bass yeah right and I actually did more of that too in in school too so anyway you know later on in that band in the weary hearts band we started to splinter off and, and we had some band changes and we we brought in uh chris jones to sure. play guitar and sing for us and, yeah falling stars there ain't one dream that's come true since i left home since i left you in the cold, just one memory's warm in the dark. Just one light comes on, though I'm lost. There's one thing I've found. I know the way to you. I know the way to you by heart. And uh, he's the guy that said, uh, you know, he said, well, I really want to go to Nashville. He said, but I'll come out there and join your band if you guys will consider moving to Nashville. We hadn't really thought about it, but we decided, okay, that's a good idea. Let's work towards that. And uh, so he came out and joined our band in Phoenix. And we would go, we played uh, mostly on the West Coast. We'd go all the way up into British Columbia and Alberta and play gigs in the summertime. And eventually uh, Ron and Eric, or Chris and Eric, married sisters from up, way up in Northern Alberta. So... You know, when you're in a band, all these things happen. Life <laughs> changes. Uh, there's whatever internal dramas that you have uh, with people and all being in close quarters for a couple of years. Yeah. And, and uh, so eventually uh, Ron decided that he was uh, not going to make the move to Nashville and left the band. And so to keep the band going, we had all these dates and gigs and we had planned the movie here at the end of the summer. We had it all laid out. I went back to playing the banjo oh. and we were using different bass players to play with us the whole 180 went from the bass back to the banjo so really when i moved to nashville i was known as and was playing banjo mostly oh interesting and uh but i got more work when i got here playing the bass for some reason i don't know why but maybe there wasn't as many at the time i think it's uh, a supply and demand there thing. was plenty of banjo yeah. players yeah. to call you know and again i was you know i was the new guy in town so i was way down on the call list for anything yeah. so but came with a band, and that was what we did for a little while. And then eventually the band just kind of splintered apart and, and sputtered out. But mm -hmm. uh, And then from that point, I was when I really started playing the bass yeah. more. You know, Well, actually, I played uh, with Larry Cordell. Uh, he used to play right over here in Hendersonville at a little club called Bell Cove on Wednesday nights. And Bill Monroe would come every night. 
after church and eat dinner and then get up and play the second set at this club. And it was uh, Glenn Duncan and, and Larry Cordell had this band, Lonesome Standard Time. Mm-hmm. And um, the, a couple of guys that played with him at that time were uh, Derwin Henson and his brother. And they played for uh, Vern Gosden. They were like great harmony singers. And okay. That's where they had a bluegrass you know, background, but they were in Vern's tra- touring band for a bit there, I think. But eventually the band kind of it changed over the years. And then eventually I found myself in the band. And uh, I on, the, on banjo, right? On banjo, yeah. And I played, made the first record that they made yeah. for Sugar Hill. Dixieland swinging, an old five strings ringing, picking out the Alabama Jubilee. There's all the game of chance, including sweet romance. It's travel at the hot luxury. She leaves the dock in St. Louis. Making her way south to New Orleans. The captain's in the wheelhouse and he's calling for a mighty head of steam. Delta Queen. And that just kind of fell out of the sky, you know, because. <laughs> uh, at the time, those guys didn't tour at all. They didn't have any interest in touring. You know, Glenn Duncan has a great session career here in Nashville. And, and at that time, music, uh, country music was, you know, just through the roof. So mm-hmm. as I often say about Nashville, if you leave, a bunch of roots and, and uh, vines will grow up in your in your spot. You know, if you leave, uh, there's, you, you can be replaced real quick. So, yeah. uh, so The vacuum fills in yeah and so as a session musician he didn't want to just walk away from that to go play bluegrass festivals he'd already done all that you know uh-huh. glenn and of course larry was writing songs writing Song hit songs writing, and you yeah. had to do it every day you know it's a full-time job so we were playing out there we made the record and all of a sudden they started getting gigs you know and offers because the music was all original and uh-huh. i think at that time bluegrass music was really kind of uh starved for that you know hot rise was winding down at that time and they had a lot of original music because they had a song a couple songwriters in the band remind but, me what year this is, this is like mid 80s i moved here in 1989 okay so, so i went early to, 90s maybe yeah okay. so it was uh, 91 actually all right and uh right before that i went to japan uh played i came up with a bunch of musicians at the same time so sort of my contemporaries are allison Krauss, union station uh-huh. A band called Dusty Miller, which was Adam Steffi, Tim Stafford, and um, they 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 became Allison's band. Barry Bales, they became Allison's band. Oh. But we were all kind of contemporaries of each other and crossing each other's paths at festivals and stuff. Yeah, sort of in the same age group, you know. I got to know Jeff White, who was playing with uh, Allison at the time, and then when she changed her whole lineup with the Dusty Miller guys, and and then Jeff was out. Well, Jeff took a job uh, in Japan playing at a like a little tourist destination kind of like a little fisherman's wharf thing mm-hmm. in the middle of the biggest suspension bridge in the world it goes across the ocean there from one island to another called the seto ahashi bridge and it goes from the big island of japan to shikoku island okay and, and in the middle of it is this little tiny island and it's a little tourist stop and the tour buses will come down there and there's a boat ride that goes around the island huh. and they have these uh restaurants seafood restaurants and stuff and the whole place is staffed by American students from a college in Michigan at the time. And uh, the guy that had the gig was a guy named David Peters, who lived in Houston. Okay. Tremendous musician, great. Uh, and he was a guy that we knew from seeing in all these picking contests because yeah. he was a, a contest guy. Yeah. 
played mandolin and he played guitar and he was just a fantastic musician yeah that album he recorded is blazing yeah and so he had this contract this gig and so for several years he took a whole new bluegrass band over there hmm. and uh, so the year that i went over there he had the band it was pat cloud was playing the banjo okay. tammy fassart on bass and jeff white on guitar and then he played the mandolin well pat cloud he short-circuited over there with the band, and they got crossed up, and he decided he was coming back. He quit mm. after six months. It was, a, it was an interesting gig. It was 16 days. You play 16 days, 30-minute sets a day, and then you have a day off, and then you do another 16 days. Okay. So the gig was nine months of that. Wow. And um, he finally just had enough of it after six <laughs> months, and, and he said, I'm out of here. To get to there, the Jeff called me, and he said, hey, you want to come over here and play these last three months Filling with in us? for Pat. Well, Pat, because Pat's leaving. And uh, I said, yeah, sure, I'll come over there. And I yeah. thought, well, wait a minute. I just talked to Ronnie McCurry about joining Del McCurry's band. And I didn't know about the Larry Cordell thing yet. Uh -huh. you know. So I was really trying to get the job playing bass with Del at the time in 91. Okay. I talked to Ronnie at a thing, an event here in Nashville at the Opryland Park. They had a bluegrass festival. And I had met those guys and known them. And they would come through town and hang out and you know, we jam at the station in late hours, all hours of the night and hang out and party and this and that and general shenanigans. And uh, so I was trying to get the job with Dell because they were going to move to Nashville. They were, you know, he told me they were looking at property and they were thinking about moving down here from Pennsylvania. And I said, and their bass guy wasn't going to The bass and with? fiddle player were not going to come down. Okay. And I don't know if that was, they knew that or not, or I don't, I don't know how that was going to work right. out. Right. I, you know, I talked to Ronnie and I said, man, I'd really love to do it. And he said, well, I've, you're on my short list, you know? Yeah. So, but then this opportunity came to go to Japan. And so I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to do this. So I went over to Japan and, and I kept in touch with Ronnie. I called him a couple of times to see what's going on. And, oh, we're, we're still looking, you know, nothing happened, nothing new. And okay. uh, so when I got back, they still hadn't been done. They had but initially been, you were worried that going there might've. I'd lose the job, the yeah. opportunity there. And so. Uh, I got back to Nashville and they weren't even close to moving here yet. So, um, and this was just like four months after I talked to him. Right. You know? So, uh, finished at the gig in Japan, came back. And the next thing I know, I'm starting, I'll start playing with Larry Cordell at the, at the Bell Cove over here. And he got a record deal. So I ended up making the record with him. Mm. And then, uh, in uh, February of 92, uh, Ronnie moved to Nashville first. He was the first one to come down. He and his wife moved here. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a couple more months later before Dell and Gene moved down here and Rob. Okay. And uh, so when I first got a job with him, me and Ronnie drove to Pennsylvania together in his little Hyundai <laughs> and uh, played at Beaver, Pennsylvania, uh, Memorial Day weekend of 92. All right. That was my first gig I played with him. And I had to borrow David Parmley's bass because... We, Ronnie had a little tiny car, and we couldn't get the, <laughs> couldn't, couldn't get the bass in it. At the time, uh, the McCurries and the Parmleys had a record out called Families of Tradition, and they were doing oh. the festival circuit, doing that show together. Okay. And they would each do their own set, and then they would do this thing together. collaborative so, thing. so I just borrowed David Parmley's bass and played the first show. And, of course, he had different kind of strings on his bass, and uh, everything was different. And I just did the best I could. And, and sure enough, Dell said, well, we'll use you next week. You can make it. <laughs> and that's how I got the job. That's how I started. And then, you know, I was with him 13 years. I played it smart. I broke your heart, blue darling. And lost the only love in life worthwhile. 
my heart would cry if ever I should lose you. Blue darling, you're the only, only one. So speaking of you playing with that band, a lot of times I'll ask banjo players about their their stage setup and their microphones. So this is a good segue into something you've already mentioned is Dell and and you guys, I think, really repopularized doing the single or sometimes double condenser yeah. mic setup. Yes. Talk about what goes into that. Well, what happened was uh, <laughs> Dell hates monitors on stage. Uh-huh. Uh, monitors are a touchy thing. You know, a lot of people like to have them blasting back at them on stage, but Really, you just need them to support what you're doing out front so you've got just a little support. And when I started with them, we played on separate microphones. So when you've got eight microphones. With monitors. Yeah, when you've got eight microphones and the guy's mixing from you know, 30, 40 feet out in front of the stage, he has no idea what the monitors sound right. like. They think they do, but they got the, the mains blasting There's no way you can. Yeah. If they pull it up and they have their own little monitors so they think they know what it sounds like, but they're hearing the mains, it's just hard to balance it all out. So we just suffered all the time from bad stage sound. And um, we saw Doyle Lawson play on one microphone somewhere and got a tape of it. And Dale Perry, who played a bass at that time with Doyle Lawson, is also a great banjo player. Yeah. He's the guy that figured out how to do this. And he had a little rig that uh, he plugged that microphone into. It had a feed, what they call a feedback exterminator, yeah. which we never got one of those. We just kind of relied on the sound guy to balance it out. But that's, that's the first time we ever saw anybody play on one microphone. And we thought, wow, this, that's the greatest, you know? Yeah. And Dell was really attractive to him because that's the, really the way that he came up was playing on a couple of microphones, singing on one microphone. And so we ended up getting a, one of those microphones, an Audio-Technica uh, 40, uh, what is it, 4011? 4033, 40, that's it. Thank you. 4033, and we got one of those, and then we started doing it. And first thing we realized, we needed a windscreen for that thing. So sure. <laughs> we found a windscreen because – uh, real susceptible to wind, but we didn't have the outboard gear like Dale Perry had. Yeah, we just plugged it in and let the sound guy worry about it. But we didn't use any monitors, no monitors at all, and uh, it just really changed everything dynamically with our band. And we learned how to sing around it, and you know how to put—I call it delta formation. You know, whatever's happening happens in front of that microphone up front. Everything else is in support around it, and then you learn how to move in and out. Like, you know, the lead players, you know, Del and I would always be on the left side of the microphone. And the other guys, other three guys would rotate, always go out to the right, come in from behind to play okay. your solo so you get the pickup notes. And you don't miss the pickup notes, you know, and you don't crash into each other. One guy goes this way while the other guy comes in right from behind. And we're sort of offset to the left, uh, Del and I. So, and then I would sing baritone and we'd come together at the microphone to sing. I'd be in the back, you know. And we just learned how to do it by getting out on stage and doing it. Then eventually we went to two microphones to get more of the fiddle and mandolin back up just to fatten it up a little bit more in the yeah. sound. But we never had a sound guy. and They never had a sound guy until after I was in the band. That's incredible. And, you know, we played in all kinds of places. And so I was in charge of setting up the stage, setting up the microphones and stuff. And we played this club in Hollywood called the Roxy, which is a famous rock venue and mm -hmm. like the, you know, the Rolling Stones do pop-up shows in there before a tour or something like yeah. that. It's a legendary place. And I, how we got in there, I have no idea. But <laughs> we had a great crowd in there. But anyway, we show up and we got our microphones. Now, when you go into a place like that, 
those guys have met so many assholes in the business that they just try to out asshole you from the get go. Uh -huh. So I walk in, I got the microphones. And the guy says, uh, "How many inputs?" I go, "Well, just two, two, just two microphones." <laughs> and he goes, "How many DIs?" I go, "No DIs." How many vocals? And I go, "There's no vocals." I There's said, "Two we, microphones." I said, "We play that's on two whole. large diaphragm microphones, and that's it." And he looks at me and he goes, "That'll never work in here." And I said, "Well, I said it's going to have to." work because that's what we do and i said so let's get them plugged in and turn them on and just see what we can do with it so this guy was like completely uh negative from the get-go you know like this isn't gonna work we did the sound check and of course a big empty room huge empty place uh, and he's trying to push the volume as much as he can boom. but it just we're dealing yeah. with all this <laughs> feedback and we don't have the feedback exterminator you know yeah. And uh, so he was just like, okay, we're just going to have to go with that. Like, you know, you got to bring the volume down to where it won't feed back. I said, yeah. I said that's all you got to do. I said, and I said, you'll have a little more headroom when there's people in here. I said, but that's where you want to start right there. So we get done with the show and the guy totally transformed to another person. Wow. He comes up to me and he goes, man, that was the greatest thing I've ever heard in my <laughs> life unbelievable what you guys do over those two microphones he goes listen to this listen to this and he, he had recorded the show he starts playing it back over the pa right after we got done yeah i said hey man turn that off first of all i said everybody's already seen the show and uh <laughs> people were still in the house he was yeah well they were you know it's the end of the night people milling around or whatever but he was trying to tell me how great it sounded he couldn't believe how we mixed ourselves on uh -huh. stage and the whole purpose of it was to take the sound man's hands off of the sound we had control of it if they could just get the volume up, we mix the sound by moving around and, and doing our own and capturing our dynamics instead of working against somebody who didn't know the music and would often fight the dynamics yeah, of the try music. Try to outsmart so, you, yeah. So a fiddle player, you know, he might be off mic, but he's playing backup and it, it mixes in perfectly, but they think they're not getting enough of it, you know, or whatever, because it's not as prominent in the sound. And, and one of the things that happened playing the bass was that they'd say, well, we'll put a mic on the bass. And every time we put a mic on the bass, the bass would hit the back wall and come back at us and it would feel you'd have this weird sort of sense of the the bass was too prominent in the mix with yeah. the two microphones and so i would get it back and it would be just a millisecond slap back you yeah. know and it just had a weird feel to it because it was the only thing that had a mic it was the the sound wasn't being mixed here it was that was coming back well so, it's coming through both so it's yeah this just, one and yeah and so five you know, these guys start later. stomping their leg next to me i'm playing right next to them but it feels like it's dragging you know so i just quit playing with the microphone on the bass and it just cleaned everything up and it sounded great you know it just mixed right in but i had to have a good loud bass you know to get in there with them but the thing is the low end waves of a bass they go through anything and the mm -hmm. microphone picked it all up and just uh People would say, oh, I said, what are you using on your bass? I said, nothing. We're just all playing on those two microphones, you know? Yeah, that's and amazing. So it was a, it was, it, it did a lot of good both for us because sound wise, just learning how to play together on stage like that with no monitors. Now, there are some places where it has its limitations. And, oh, absolutely. You know, some yeah. like giant festival where you can't hear anything that's coming out of the main speakers. Like, for instance, Telluride is a very unique stage. It's, it's a new stage now, but it used to be like you were in a, in a room. And you couldn't hear anything because the speakers are up on towers. Yeah. And the, all you could hear was the coming off, what was coming off the mountain, you know, back at you, uh, you know, a second later. Uh -huh. And so you'd have this weird, it'd be very hard to, to play in time because you'd have this force right. coming back at you that's pushing and pulling. And it takes a while to get used to that, like how to 
get that out of your, you know, not listen to that and listen to each other. Yeah, is the solution just to gather even closer? Play as tight as you play can. Play acoustically? Yeah. yeah. And a lot of people, you know, they say, well, I bought one of them microphones, but it doesn't work for us. I don't know why. All it does is feedback. And I'm like, well, you're not playing close enough to it, first of all. Right. You've got it wide open and everybody's back here, you know, everybody goes for the wall instead of getting up in the microphone. Exactly. And so whatever's happening vocal-wise, it needs to be up here and the instruments need to be back here yeah. like this. And only certain microphones allow you to do that. You know, like this, this microphone's a very directional microphone. So people would try to use a 58 like that, but as soon as you get over here, you lose everything. Yeah, you're off. And you have to be right on it. And so with a large diaphragm, it has a wider pattern. It picks up in, a, you know, basically 180 degrees and works a lot better for it. But um, we played one time down in uh, Savannah, Georgia, or Charleston, South Carolina is where it was, a, a bar down there. And uh, the sound guy, he was just, during the sound check, he was just, he just couldn't get it right, get it dialed uh -huh. in, you know. And he's, we're just, again, other situations, we're just going to have to go for it, you know. Yeah. I said, don't worry about it. I said, when you get a bunch of people in here, it's going to be great. And sure enough, as soon as the people came in, it wasn't uh, swarming around in there so much. It had some absorption, you know. Sure. So yeah, it sort helps. of changed the way it was. And so, you know, I always tell the sound guy, I said, just, just during the sound check, just get it up where it doesn't feed back. And then said, and then you can push it later when you have a crowd in here. And it always worked, you know. Yeah, very, very interesting. And now they're up to five microphones and they got a sound guy and it's, you know, they've got a bigger, they have a bigger sound now, but it's, they have the sort of the same concept of moving around and playing in the microphone, but they've got maybe two up, two down, the bass is plugged in okay, and maybe some in-ear monitors happening. I don't know, but, uh, you know. They're going for a bit more rock style venues in well general yeah too, aren't the thing, they? yeah just to, to, to get it up some more so you can compete with these they can compete with these other bands a lot of times we never have to compete with anybody you know mm -hmm. uh, but if you're going to play with uh bands you know so many groups now have uh they play with pickups and you know to get the volume up to a what you say commercial music volume yeah. level uh everybody goes direct now and it's it's kind of I, it kind of bums me out because I, I miss the days of people playing on microphones. You know, uh -huh. uh, just uh, was in Telluride and saw this band uh, Hocktail play. Oh yeah, and just basically all instrumental group, but they play on microphones and God, it's just the sound that they get so natural. And for four people, the music that they make it just sounds amazingly big, yeah, and good. You know, they're incredible. And, and a couple of those guys, I think there's two, maybe two DIs, but a very good acoustic sound to me. I don't like the sound of a pickup. You know, I don't mind it on bass so much, but they always just sound brassy and uh, bright. And, brittle, right? And Kind of crunchy. <laughs> yeah, it's just not as, they forsake tone for volume a lot of times, yeah. you know. Yeah. But going back to the choreography, was there a way you guys actually practiced that to verify that you were getting no, those we just, dynamics? I think we just played one show and we said, no, here's what we have to do to make this work, you know. Okay. So this side, these three work in a circle, basically. You always come in from behind. And you get in front of the microphone, whatever's happening, whether it's a vocal or whether it's an instrumental break, you know, Ronnie would lift his mantle and up play yeah. on the microphone. So that would be the most, the, the, the point of the Delta formation, you know, okay. and, uh, and that would just change for whatever was going to happen. One time when we, when we were touring with Steve Earle, we went and did this TV show called uh, Sessions on West 54th Street. Oh, yeah. Or 52nd Street. One of was those. that David Burns thing? Uh, might have been. I don't I'm, remember. I might be confusing. Uh, it was something. a it was a show kind of like uh, something you'd see uh, like Austin City Limits or yeah. something like that. It was a yeah. live music performance show, 
And so this guy comes up to me, this New York uh, director, and he goes, okay, tell me about this one mic thing. How's this going to work? <laughs> now, where we're doing this is in this, uh, the old Columbia studio in New York City where Frank Sinatra made all of his great records. And in the Dylan 40s and, 50s and, all, and the same thing. Yeah, and yeah, underneath yeah. the stage was a swimming pool that had camera ports on it where the uh, Esther Williams filmed all of her movies. You know, huh. it was underneath. There was a, it was a film studio and a recording studio. It was a, anyway, I tell the guy, I said, look, I said, it doesn't matter what camera you use. I said, it's all going to happen right here in front of this microphone. doesn't matter if you're looking from over there, over here, down yeah. here, up there. <laughs> it's going to happen right here. So you can just move your cameras around, but have everything sort of, you know, focused here to the center and you'll be fine. And it, it's come off really good. It's, it's on YouTube. You can find it on there. Oh, cool. And I just remember that there was all of these uh, union stagehands there with nothing to do. <laughs> Sitting around. We had no equipment but our two microphones. Well, right. At that time, we had Steve Earle. We, he had a single vocal microphone. And then his sound guy had made a little stereo mic that would go down in the center of the mic stand, mm. pick up the lower instruments. And that's all we had with basically three microphones. And I plugged the bass in. We had a big bass okay. sound on that tour. And, uh, and that's what we did. It was just, you know, you had to make people believers of that, of that single mic thing every time because they just, it happened two generations ago. You know, they, people don't have the concept. You know, why would you do that if you, have, if you can have eight microphones? Well, because you don't make the eight microphones complement each other when we're playing, you know. You're fighting the you're fighting the sound guy all the time. You I don't, think if you don't have your own guy, I think that's exactly it. I think a lot of sound guys hear that and they're just really uncomfortable not having control right over what's happening. And they, that's what we were trying to wrestle away from. Exactly, <laughs> that's the point. We don't want you mucking. So it you up. try to do it as nice as possible and make them <laughs> believers after the show, you know. And nine, again, nine times out of ten, it, was, it worked out great. You know, yeah, that's cool. Ever any mishaps? Any fiddle bows to eyeball contact? Or nah, anything nothing like that. Like that. Uh, okay. Every once in a while. Josh Graves told me one time, he said the first time he ever played with uh, Flat and Scruggs, he knocked Earl's bridge over on his banjo. Oh, no. And I don't know if it was a radio show or what it was, but he, you know, he came in and he just stabbed the banjo uh -huh. with, the, with the dobro neck and, <laughs> and the banjo bit bridge went over. And after, he said afterward, I told Earl, I said, I'm really sorry that that happened. You know, sorry about that, Earl. And he said, it won't happen again. <laughs> <laughs> That's about as, as forceful as Earl got, I, I imagine. <laughs> I guess this is the last question, but it might be a, a longer conversation. There's, there's a sense that you got this bluegrass baton from a lot of the first and second generation guys. You, know, you were around to play with a lot of them and, and know them personally. Now I hear multiple people have said how, how welcoming and supportive you are to the next generation and kind of welcoming them into the scene and, and being supportive of them. So talk about how you see your role now that you're somewhat of an elder statesman of, of the music. How, I don't know, where do you see your part fitting into all this and, and what's your duty to, well, to the music? I don't know if it's a sense of duty so much as it is, is that this is what I love to do. And I'm not, you know, I tell people, I said, I'm going to die with my boots on right here in Nashville. So I told them all last year when COVID hit, I was just like, some people packed up, went home, you know, back to be closer to where they came from in this town. Um, but Nashville is a, just like me, I came here when I was 23, 24 years old. That's still happening today. There's a new generation that comes every five years here. Mm. And they're all bringing something new. They're bringing something 
their their experience of the music. And in Nashville, uh, the music scene here is self policing. It's uh, it's uh, this town can chew you up and spit you right back out. You know, I'm a survivor. You know, I came pretty green when I got here, and I learned a lot. And one of the things I learned was that you have to really know the foundations of this town and the music that made this town what it is and what brings people here. And they, people come here because this is where the best musicians that, that really want to do it every day as much as possible live. You can't do this when you're living in uh, Indianapolis or some, you know, wherever it, it's just, there are areas of this country where there's a lot of musicians, like a big pocket of musicians, but they don't have the daily music scene that we have here, which is recording, performing, touring, writing songs, you know, being able to rehearse with people uh, and a big variety of music that you and artists that you can cross pollinate with, you know. And so this is a big beacon for people to come here. And it's been doing it's been that way since since the uh, Grand Ole Opry started, I would imagine. Yeah. I love, there's a bunch of people that came here in the 80s. People like Bela Fleck, Jerry Douglas, Kathy Chiavola, uh, Carl Jackson, real luminaries and innovators of this business. You know, some of those guys came, they were young. They worked for James Monroe. They worked for Bill Monroe. They were sidemen in these different bands. And so sidemen have been coming here forever to work in these bands, you know. And because of the Grand Ole Opry, uh, those bluegrass jobs, Bill Monroe, Jim and Jesse, and the Osborne brothers are kind of were kind of covered coveted for a long time because you could actually make a day, a weekly paycheck playing bluegrass music. You can't do that anywhere else. It, especially, you know, now you can more than probably than ever, but because the music is broadened out, more popular, and this and that. But uh, if you really want to just, uh, as I say, Nashville is all you can eat. You know, if you want to play music 24-7, you can do it here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got here at a time that, uh, 1989, when I look back on it, very fortunate time because so many people were still around. Roy Acuff and Minnie Pearl were still opening the Opry on Saturday nights. Really? Wow. You know, the Osborne brothers, were when they weren't on the road, they were at the Grand Ole Opry. Uh -huh. When Bill Monroe wasn't on the road, he was at the Grand Ole Opry. And Jim and Jesse, because they viewed that Opry as just part of what they did. So they played every weekend that they weren't gone. And so those are good jobs because every it's like a you get a paycheck every week. Right. You know, where some bands, man, well, we don't have another gig for two weeks. You know, so you got to do this. You got to work at this oil change place or you got to work at this. I delivered furniture when I first came here. I worked for a futon store. <laughs> delivered furniture until I could work enough music in music to, to support myself, you know? Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I point that out to a lot of these young kids that come here and it's like, you know, you, you have to be willing to take a job. If, if you really want to play music, you want to be here and you want to get into it. Uh, you, you have to be willing to take a job, whatever it takes to be here until something good happens. So case in point uh, playing with Tim O'Brien, he's always listening out there to young musicians. And you know, the last couple of years, he was using uh, Corey Walker and uh, Patrick Sauber to play banjo. Yeah. So we go different parts of the country, or we could connect. Either be Patrick or Corey, depending upon you know who could make it or who, who was available. And then this year he chose to take uh, this young guy, Gavin Largen, out who plays dobro and banjo. He's a phenomenal musician. Right. And he's twenty something, you know. And and I think, wow, man, I didn't really. You know, I came here with a band, so it took me a while before I really became a sideman. Uh -huh. But that's mostly what people do. You know, you can now freelance and you can be a sideman. Of course, the, the bluegrass era of the Opry is really different and changed now. It's not like it was back then where, um, you know, I got to be around Bill Monroe. I played the Opry with Bill Monroe. I've got to uh, 
the first time I ever played the Grand Ole Opry was with the Osborne brothers okay. and played bass with them on a filled in for Terry Smith. I think I've heard you tell that story before. Like it didn't go very well, right? Well, the, what happened was <laughs> the first, it used to be there was two shows every Friday and Saturday night. They go to midnight from uh, seven o'clock at night to midnight. It was two shows. Okay. So we're, we're there. And of course, you know, Sonny Osborne came to the Opry first time he was 14 years old uh-huh. and he was scared to death. You know, I mean, that's, it's, it's, and, it, and, and he wanted anybody that was going to be there for the first time, he wanted you to feel that what he felt when he was 14. He wanted you to be uncomfortable because you're yeah. supposed to be. Yeah. And you should be. And, and, uh, <laughs> so we're playing, you know, we do the first show and, uh, it goes, okay. I was so nervous about it, which is where he wanted me to be. And, uh, you know, I just really studied hard to make sure I could, whatever they were going to call out that I would kind of know how to play it and make sure it, you know, they rehearse everything, yeah. run the tune before they go out there. So we did the first song and then, uh, you know, there's a long break between the second show. So everybody goes out to eat, uh, at Cracker Barrel or Shoney's or whatever and comes back. So we come back to do the second show and we just start jamming in the dressing room and they just do one song after another, one after another. And, and we wound up doing a uh, nine pound hammer. We're playing nine pound hammer in the key of B. And then you hear over the PA speaker, Osborne Brothers to the stage, please. Osborne Brothers to the stage. And because they were running a little bit late, I guess. So they start going out the door. And Terry Eldridge, who was playing guitar with him, said, uh, he said, what are you going to do, Chief? He goes, I guess we'll do that one there. And as they're going out the door, he turns to me and he goes, you know the bass solo on that, right, dude? I go, bass solo? He goes, yeah, you'll know when it comes up. A nine-pound hammer? Yeah, he says, you'll okay. know when it comes up. I'm like, oh, God, don't tell me I got to take a bass solo. I'd rather know before it comes up. Yeah, so anyway, we get out there on the stage. And back then, the whole Opry staff band was part of what they did. So they had steel guitar, lead, uh, Leon Rhodes on lead guitar, uh-huh. and uh, maybe a piano. I don't know. Weldon Myrick played steel out there back then. So they had the whole staff band behind them. So we're out there playing, and he suddenly passes it off to everybody, you know, the the staff guys and everybody. And then it comes around and goes, finally comes to the bass solo. Well, in the key of B, there's no open strings really to use on the bass. Uh-huh. So there's no tricks. There's no, and I'm not a soloist at all, you know. So your general reaction when you take a bass solo is go boogie woogie on it, you know, don't, 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 don't. So I just sort of start doing something like that, just try to make some noise. And now all of a sudden you hear this little light clap come up from the audience, you know, it's for some reason. And, and Sonny turns to me and he goes, take another one. Oh, no. And I was like, it was hard enough to get through the first one, but I had to go again a whole nother round. And I'm like surrounded by the greatest musicians in the world, you know? And uh, anyway, it was, you know, that was my, my first night, first time on the Opry. And, and like I said, just the way he wanted me to be, which was completely nervous and Terrified. scared to death, you know? Oh, and man. of course I've never forgot it, you know, and you shouldn't never forget it. It's, a, it's such an institution. And uh, you know, you walk out there. I mean, I love, I love the Grand Ole Opry. I've been, I didn't know anything about it when I moved to Nashville. And then uh, I got to know Terry Eldridge and Jimmy Campbell and Steve Thomas and uh, a bunch of good guys that were playing in, as sidemen in these bands. Billy Rose, I knew him from earlier in my career. And so, you know, I would go out to the Opry and see them play and be hanging out with these guys. And, and then eventually I got to play out there. But uh, it has such an important role in the music of this town and, and the history and the musicians, you know, that, that played out there and stuff. Yeah. And so when I got here, I, you know, I immediately was taken to school. You learn about all these guys that made these records and, and played the Opry and all the contributions that they've made to country and bluegrass music. And 
how they all sort of interconnect different ways. And, and so I really enjoyed that, but, um, you know, it was the first time you get to do anything is of course is exciting, but playing on the Opry was really a thrill. And I played banjo out there quite a bit with Bill Monroe. He, he, uh, oh, you did. Dana cup used to commute down here on the weekends to yeah. play with Bill. Uh, but they used to have uh, matinee shows at the uh, at the Opry House uh, during the day, uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays for Opryland theme park to get people out of the heat and then the air conditioning. And Bill Monroe did a bunch of those during the week. Um, they would have like oh. a miniature Opry show. There'd be like four Opry acts, and they do a, each do fifteen minutes, and it would be a one hour Grand Ole Opry show yeah. during the day. And so Dana would let me have me, and actually they have a bunch of us would sub for him on these different. He let everybody sub for him. But uh, I did a bunch of them because I would also uh, sub on bass for Tater Tate when he wasn't feeling well. So Dana would let me, uh, you know, fill in for him. And so I got to play bass with Bill or banjo with Bill out there. And one time I was playing, uh, uh, give you an example. Yeah, let's hear it. The tune du jour at the time was was a song called... uh, Something Junction. Anyway, I was playing the melody. Uh, something like that. And I'm playing my break, and, and we're practicing in the dressing room. And Bill stops. He goes, that ain't right. That ain't the way that's played. That's, you're not playing that right. And he got real bowed up about it, you know, and I was just like, I was scared to death, you know. Uh-huh. And uh, I go, I'm not playing it right. And uh, Tater Tate was playing the fiddle, and he goes, I think you need to put this note in there. And, it, and I found out it was. Uh. I had this note in there. Where okay. Let's see. Uh, where we go? Where we go to see there? Anyway, that little piece in there, I was missing that, you know. <laughs> And that's what he plays on the mandolin. And uh, so Tater told me, he said, you got to get this. Tombstone Junction is the name of the tune. Okay. Finally came to me. Uh, And he basically saved me. (laughs) And then when I got it right, you know, Bill was happy, you know, about it. Just uh, like Terry Eldridge saved you from that (laughs) that first wreck that could have happened. Right. And, uh, you know. What really struck me was that Bill Monroe, out of a barrage of banjo notes, could hear that I wasn't quite getting the melody uh-huh. right, you know, and he just stopped every stopped the train, you mm-hmm. know, which I thought was just amazing, you know, when I look back on it. Since that time, you know, uh, I listened to a lot of Bill Monroe's music, and I've always said, I've always admired Butch Robbins playing as one of my favorite uh-huh. banjo players, because he also, he did a lot of the uh, sort of progressive stuff uh, on his records, but... The, the record that he made, uh, The Fifth Child, has just always been one of my favorite banjo albums. And for a long time, it didn't come out on CD. It's only available on LP. And uh, But that was his uh, Bill Monroe era record. And uh, you know, Bill Monroe always talks about the banjo being the fifth child of bluegrass. It was the last thing to come in after uh, with Earl Scruggs. Or actually, Stringbean was his first banjo player, but he already had the other instruments established, the fiddle, you know, mandolin, bass, and guitar. And then the banjo came in as the fifth child of. And that's where okay, that comes that's where from. that title comes from. Okay. And uh, but I've always said that uh, Butch Robbins to me was the best ban- uh, best interpreter of Bill Monroe's music on the five string banjo. Like he really knew how to get the essence of the man of the mandolin melodies that he was playing, you know, and really work them into his banjo playing. 
And there's just so much subtlety in in some of those melodies that Bill would play. The way that he played, sort of a, with his, a at that time more of a instead of a, such a heavy downstroke single note playing, he would be playing more of a brushy type uh, melody, you know. Yeah. And uh, and Bush could pull that out, the essence of a tune out, and put it into the banjo melody, which I always thought was just fantastic. Uh -huh. And I, you know, years later I got to make a record with Butch, and it was kind of his. You know, he, he didn't leave Bill Monroe on good terms. And so there was a lot of years that went by. They didn't speak to each other. But then he, he made this record called Grounded, Centered, and Focused. And we recorded with uh, Bill and kind of brought them back together. And I uh, got to play bass on that record. Oh, cool. And then another time I recorded uh, an album with Jimmy Campbell called Pieces of Time. It was the last record that he made. And uh, he made it with Bill Monroe, too. And there's a bunch of Bill's sort of obscure songs on there. It's a great, mm -hmm. great record. That was a great experience, but yeah, I've always been a big fan of uh, of Butch's playing, and uh, tried to emulate him in those situations. Yeah, me too. Me too. Anything else we forgot to talk about that you? Any other cool stories that you want to share or advice for for banjo players looking to? Don't play bass. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell how bad my role is. Jeez. Now uh, you know. Um, you know. There's all these points and anybody that really uh, you know pursues this music you have those times when you meet the people that you really you know say you have their records or you listen to them and and then you get a chance to meet them or see them and then meet them afterward and, and uh it's 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 crazy i was talking to tim o'brien this weekend i said you know you think about how many uh generations of young kids you've seen come up in the last you know he's been at it for 45 50 years now mm -hmm. I said, you know, we're at Telluride and, and Sarah Watkins is emceeing the festival. And, you know, we, we knew them when they were just little kids, yeah. you know, and now they're like headlining acts at festivals and they're just a big part of the music. And, you know, some people, they get interested in it and then they fall away from the music and pursue their another job or a family or whatever it is. Uh, but the ones that stick with it, you become a lifer. And that's the way that I am. You know, that's why I say I'll die here with my boots on in Nashville, right. Tennessee. Because I can't do what I do anywhere else. It's just really neat to see uh, somebody like that where you've, you know, you know them when they were just a kid. They were coming, uh, Sarah Jarose. I met her when she was 11 years old. And yeah. She was a real bluegrasser back then. You know, she uh -huh. played bluegrass mandolin and we, she came to the Rocky Grass Academy uh, workshops a couple of years in a row out in Colorado. And uh, now she's just like a fully, fully formed artist, a singer, songwriter, musician. Yeah. She can still play the bluegrass, but she's, taking a whole new sound of music to a whole nother place. And uh -huh. here she is headlining on the main stage at yeah. this big festival. It's been around for 40, you know, 46, seven years. It's just really cool. It's, it's nice if you can get close to somebody that can and then help you out and, and inspire you to stay in it and stay with it. You know, everybody's lives are different and experiences are different. But uh, uh, like I say, this, this town, people kind of, they come here and some stay and some, some go on, you know, uh, the string dusters are an interesting uh, group study. You know, they all started right. here in Nashville. They all converged here. They all came here. Yeah. And um, they formed their band, but they went a totally different route of trying to develop their audience and create an audience for themselves. And they did it the hard way, which is uh, going out and meeting the people on a one-on-one -on -one basis, which is instead of going the bluegrass festival route and trying to compete with every other bluegrass band for a slot at a bluegrass festival, which they were doing some of that, they went and played at clubs. And they, of course, they're younger guys. They were very tech savvy. They made all these videos while they're to promote their music right. and promote themselves. And they would play where they uh, had their own, they had the control of the room. Basically, it was their gig, you know. 
Mm-hmm. And that was an interesting way. And now there's, you know, they play the biggest stage. Huge, yeah. And they've developed their own following, their own crowd. And that's such a crucial thing because, you know, normal bluegrass bands that get out there and they're they're playing a bluegrass festival, you're you're playing for the same audience as uh, you know, eight other bands that weekend or whatever. And so to get the dollar from at the at the record table from somebody in the crowd, you know, they gotta make a decision. Oh, I want to get their record, I want to get their t-shirt, I don't know which I can only get one, you know. So right. But when you have control of the room and it's your own gig or whatever, but it's hard to get there. You got to go out there and play for nothing. You know, you got to go out there and starve and you got to put the hours and the miles in, in a van, you know, and, and do that, do all that until you can bring it up to the next level and then, you know, try to get to the next place, you know? So I, my, if I didn't work for Del McCurry for 13 years, you know, I mean, that just offered me so much uh, opportunity afterward. And I always tell band, you know, young bands and musicians, like, you should take a job with somebody and just get out there and you gotta, you gotta tough it out and be a sideman or something like that. But you gotta hang in there and, uh, and you gotta put in the time and, and the dedication to it. There's no such thing as an overnight success in this town for right. sure, you know? And, uh, so now I've been here 32 years. You know, the first half was, was, playing on the road with Del McCurry for the most part. Yeah. And uh, now the second half, I've just been freelancing. And, and because I was with Del, it gave me a bunch of opportunities afterward. You know, people called me to play the bass on a record or uh, because they knew me. Now, when I was with Del, that's pretty much all I did. Uh, we had a band that played Tuesday nights at Station Inn called The Sidemen. Right. And uh, that was a, just a fun, you know, Tuesday night in Nashville. But we had our own crowd and people in the bluegrass we would promote it to the bluegrass people out on the festival circuit and that and people would come through town and making sure it was a tuesday to they come knew see that us. tuesday was a thing yeah. yeah and it was and we had all kinds of people come sit in with us and yeah. you know show up to see us so that was kind of neat but um i got to know all these other people out there mm-hmm. because i was in this band and we were playing shows with david grisman we we're playing shows with hot rise and you know tim o'brien and the old boys and you know all variety of people so after i left dell it was like all of a sudden these people started calling me to put me on things, you know, so it all worked out great. And, and, but it gave me some kind of, um, you know, street cred, I guess, yeah. you know, because I had a little bit of a known commodity. Yeah. Thing. I had a little bit of a pedigree, you know, right. It's like in the jazz world, you know, if you work for, uh, Miles, <laughs> Miles Davis, Davis you're uh, set. you know, yeah. it, it gives you your, it's your, it's your sort of calling card. So I was very fortunate in that, in that way that, you know, a lot of great things happened while in the Del McCurry band, not only for me, but collectively as the Del McCurry band, uh-huh. you know, and got to take the music to a lot of different places in front of a lot of different people. So, um, and I'm also, you know, I'm kind of a people person. I enjoy talking to people. I've always been very, very friendly with fans and that sort of thing. Yeah. And uh, I enjoy that. And, uh, you know, you play this music a long time and people come to see you regularly. And next thing you know, you become friends with some of these people and they support you and uh, they want to come see what you do. You know, you can't just uh, discount that or ignore it. You know, you have to develop friends and fans and, and in all different instruments of the, of a band, you know, it's really good to do that. You know, advice wise, it's, it's, if you really want to be here and you want to play with the, with what I consider the best musicians in the country on a, on a day to day basis, you know, like I say, all you can eat, this is the only place you can do it. Right. You know, Come on in. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, you don't, do you have a personal website that people can go no, to to be I, updated with? No, I, I don't even do much social media. I have a Instagram and I have a two Facebook pages. Uh, 
one is just all people that I know. Uh-huh. And then I have a, and the Mike Bub Facebook page is just, I just put stuff, gigs on there and stuff. But even then I'm just lacking because <laughs> mostly I, as a bass player, you know, and I'm not trying to be humble or anything. I'm just like, nobody's going to buy a ticket to come see me play bass, you know, uh-huh. with a band. Now, if they see me that I'm going to be playing with them, that maybe that would make somebody interested in coming to see a show or whatever. But typically, somebody's going to come see Tim O'Brien. You're not going to come see me. Sounds there. like you need to switch back to banjo to me. <laughs> yeah, maybe I think, that's what I think it is. that's the answer. Well, I'm thinking about making a record. I've been talking about it for years. Really? Uh, one, one time I was going to make a record called Drinking and Driving, which was going to be all drinking songs and driving songs. <laughs> and uh, I've, you know, I've got lists of stuff. And then uh, that kind of left, but uh, I don't know. I might, I might do something just, just to have something down, you know. Well, I'll I have gu- a very limited repertoire, so <laughs> I'll guarantee that you'll sell at least one copy because <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll buy one if, right. if that if that happens. Well, so, I thought about putting me. you know a little banjo on there if I could just get the rust off my hands, you know, include some of that, maybe some of those tunes that I used to play, yeah, and get some really good, great players around me to make me sound good. <laughs> that's a good. That's a that's a good strategy, I think. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks a lot for your time and and all the stories and advice. It was great hearing them. And thanks again for well all the music you've somebody made. Out and uh, thank you for uh, reaching out and, and uh, coming over to do this. Yeah, my pleasure. That's going to do it for this episode featuring Mike Bubb, formerly of the Del McCurry Band. This episode was loaded with sound clips. He just kept referring to all sorts of cool stuff that I just wanted you to to hear. So in order, they were Castalian Springs by Lonesome Standard Time, Dueling Banjos, Eric Weisberg, Banjo Bounce by Alan Shelton, Widowmaker by Jimmy Martin, Train 45, J.D. Crow, I Was Left on the Street by the McCurry Brothers, a trio of Bela Fleck tracks, Dear Old Dixie, Spain, and Deviation, Turkey Knob by John Hickman, Sandy River Bell by Craig Smith, I Know the Way to You by Heart by the Weary Hearts, Delta Queen by Lonesome Standard Time, Blue Darling by the Del McCurry Band, and finally Jerusalem Ridge by Butch Robbins. Thank you once again to Jeff Schaefer, the VIP supporter of the show. Go to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to become a supporter yourself, and make sure you do that before July 18th so you can join us for the next VIP lounge, and that's at 1 p.m. Eastern Time on that day. So, uh, this was a long one, so I, I will let everybody go now mercilessly, or mer- mercifully, uh, Freudian slip there. Uh, if you want to hear more of my voice after all this, don't forget to go check out that Live from Banjo podcast that I was lucky enough to be featured on the most recent episode of. That's livefrombanjo.com. And uh, that's finally going to do it. I'll, uh, I'll let you go for real this time. Uh, over and out. See you next time. Mm-hmm.